Chapter 19, Part 1 of 2 of Herndon's Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Don Bracci. Herndon's Lincoln by William H. Herndon and Jesse William Wake. Section 31. The outlines of Mr. Lincoln's presidential career are alone sufficient to fill a volume, and his history, after he had been sworn into office by Chief Justice Taney, is so much a history of the entire country, and has been so admirably and thoroughly told by others, that I apprehend I can omit many of the details and still not impair the portrait I have been endeavoring to draw in the mind of the reader. The rapid shifting of scenes in this drama of secession, the disclosure of rebellion plots and conspiracies, the threats of Southern orators and newspapers, all culminating in the attack on Fort Sumter, brought the newly installed president face to face with the stern and grave realities of a civil war. The rapid shifting of scenes in the drama of secession, Mr. Lincoln's military knowledge had been acquired in the famous campaign against the Indian chief Black Hawk on the frontier in 1832, the thrilling details of which he had already given the country in a congressional stump speech and to this store of experience he had made little, if any, addition. It was therefore generally conceded that in grappling with the realities of the problem which now confronted both himself and the country, he would be wholly dependent on those who made the profession of arms a life work. Those who held such hastily conceived notions of Mr. Lincoln were evidently misled by his well-known and freely advertised democratic manners. Anybody had a right, it was supposed, to advise him of his duty, and he was so conscious of his shortcomings as a military president that the army officers and cabinet would run the government and conduct the war. That was the popular idea. Little did the press or people or politicians then know that the country lawyer who occupied the executive chair was the most self-reliant man who ever sat in it, and that when the crisis came his rivals in the cabinet and the people everywhere would learn that he and he alone would be master of the situation. It is doubtless true that for a long time after his entry into office he did not assert himself, that is, not realizing the gigantic scale upon which the war was destined to be fought. He may have permitted the idea to go forth that being unused to the command of armies he would place himself entirely in the hands of those who were. The Secretary of State, whose ten years in the Senate had acquainted him with our relations to the foreign powers, may have been lulled into the innocent belief that the executive would have no fixed or definite views on international questions, so also of the other cabinet officers. But alas for their fancied security. It was the old story of the sleeping lion. Old politicians eyeing him with some distrust and want of confidence prepared themselves to control his administration, not only as a matter of right, but believing that he would be compelled to rely upon them for support. A brief experience taught them he was not the man they bargained for. Next in importance to the attack on Fort Sumter, from a military standpoint, was the Battle of Bull Run. How the President viewed it is best illustrated by an incident furnished by an old friend, who was an associate of his in the legislature of Illinois and who was in Washington when the engagement took place. The night after the battle, he relates, accompanied by two Wisconsin congressmen, I called at the White House to get the news from Manassas, as it was then called, having failed in obtaining any information at Seward's office and elsewhere. 
Stragglers were coming with all sorts of wild rumors, but nothing more definite than that there had been a great engagement, and the bearer of each report had barely escaped with his life. Messengers bearing despatches to the President and Secretary of War were constantly arriving, but outsiders could gather nothing worthy of belief. Having learned that Mr. Lincoln was at the War Department, we started thither, but found the building surrounded by a great crowd, all as much in the dark as we. Removing a short distance away, we sat down to rest. Presently, Mr. Lincoln and Mr. Nicolay, his private secretary, came along, headed for the White House. It was proposed by my companions that, as I was acquainted with the President, I should join him and ask for the news. I did so, but he said that he had already told more than under the rules of the War Department he had any right to, and that although he could see no harm in it, the Secretary of War had forbidden him impairing information to persons not in the military service. These war fellows, he said, complainingly, are very strict with me, and I regret that I am prevented from telling you anything, but I must obey them, I suppose, until I get the hang of things. But, Mr. President, I insisted, if you cannot tell me the news, you can at least indicate its nature, that is, whether good or bad. The suggestion struck him favorably. Grasping my arm, he leaned over, and placing his face near my ear, said in a shrill but subdued voice, It's d bad. It's the first time I had ever heard him use profane language, if indeed it was profane in that connection. But later, when the painful details of the fight came in, I realized that taking into consideration the time and the circumstances, no other term would have contained a truer qualification of the word bad. About one week after the Battle of Bull Run, relates another old friend, Whitney from Illinois, I made a call on Mr. Lincoln. Having no new business except to give him some presents which the nuns at the Osage Mission School in Kansas had sent to him through me. A cabinet meeting had just adjourned, and I was directed to go at once into his room. He was keeping at bay a throng of callers, but noticing me enter, arose and greeted me with his old-time cordiality. After the room had been partially cleared of visitors, Secretary Seward came in and called up a case which related to the territory of New Mexico. Oh, I see, said Lincoln. They have neither governor nor government. Well, you see Jim Lane, the secretary and his man, and he must hunt him up. Seward then left under the impression, as I then thought, that Lincoln wanted to get rid of him and diplomacy at the same time. Several other persons were announced, but Lincoln notified them all that he was busy and could not see them. He was playful and sportive as a child, told me all sorts of anecdotes, dealing largely in stories about Charles James Fox and inquired after several odd characters whom we both knew in Illinois. While thus engaged, General James was announced. This officer had sent in word that he would leave town that evening and must confer with the President before going. Well, as he is one of the fellows who make cannons, observed Lincoln, I suppose I must see him. Tell him when I get through with Whitney I'll see him. No more cards came up, and James left about five o'clock, declaring that the president was closeted with an old Hoosier from Illinois, and was telling dirty yarns while the country was quietly going to hell. But however indignant General James may have felt, and whatever the people may have thought, still the president was full of the war. He got down his maps of the seat of war, continues Whitney, and gave me a full history of the preliminary discussions and steps leading to the Battle of Bull Run. He was opposed to the battle and explained to General Scott by those very maps how the enemy could by the aid of the railroad reinforce their army at Manassas. 
gap until they had brought every man there, keeping us, meanwhile, successfully at bay. I showed to General Scott our paucity of railroad advantages at that point, said Lincoln, and their plentitude, but Scott was obdurate and would not listen to the possibility of defeat. Now you see I was right, and Scott knows it, I reckon. My plan was, and still is, to make a strong feint against Richmond, and distract their forces before attacking Manassas. That problem General McClellan is now trying to work out. Mr. Lincoln then told me of the plan he had recommended to McClellan, which was to send gunboats up one of the rivers, not the James, in the direction of Richmond, and divert the enemy there while the main attack was made at Manassas. I took occasion to say that McClellan was ambitious to be his successor. I am perfectly willing, he answered, if he will only put an end to this war. The interview of Mr. Whitney with the President on this occasion is especially noteworthy because the latter unfolded his idea of the general plan formed in his mind to suppress the rebellion movement and defeat the Southern army. The President, continues Mr. Whitney, now explained to me his theory of the rebellion by the aid of the maps before him. Running his long forefinger down the map, he stopped at Virginia. We must drive them away from here, Manassas Gap he said, and clear them out of this part of the state, so that they cannot threaten us here, Washington, and get into Maryland. We must keep up a good and thorough blockade of their ports. We must march an army into East Tennessee and liberate the Union sentiment there. Finally, we must rely on the people growing tired and saying to their leaders, we have had enough of this thing, we will bear it no longer. Such was Mr. Lincoln's plan for heading off the rebellion in the summer of 1861. How it enlarged as the war progressed from a call for 75,000 volunteers to one for 500,000 men and 500 millions of dollars is a matter now of well-known history. The war once inaugurated, it was plain the North had three things to do. These were the opening of the Mississippi River, the blockade of the southern ports, and the capture of Richmond. To accomplish these great and vital ends, the deadly machinery of war was set in motion. The long-expected upheaval had come, and as the torrent of fire broke forth, the people in the agony of despair, looking aloft, cried out, Is our leader equal to the task? That he was the man for the hour is now the calm, unbiased judgment of all mankind. The splendid victories early in 1862 in the Southwest, which gave the Union cause great advance toward the entire redemption of Kentucky, Tennessee, and Missouri from the presence of rebel armies and the prevalence of rebel influence, were counterbalanced by the dilatory movements and inactive policy of McClellan, who had been appointed in November of the preceding year to succeed the venerable Scott. The forbearance of Lincoln in dealing with McClellan was only in keeping with his well-known spirit of kindness, but when the time came, and circumstances warranted it, the soldier-statesman found that the President not only comprehended the scope of the war, but was determined to be commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy himself. When it pleased him to place McClellan again at the head of affairs, over the protest of such a willful and indomitable spirit as Stanton, he displayed elements of rare leadership and evidence of uncommon capacity. 
his confidence in the ability and power of grant when the press and many of the people had turned against the hero of vicksburg was but another proof of his sagacity and sound judgment as the bloody drama of war moves along we come now to the crowning act in mr lincoln's career that sublime stroke with which his name will be forever and indissolubly united the emancipation of the slaves in the minds of many people there had been a crying need for the liberation of the slaves laborious efforts had been made to hasten the issuance by the president of the emancipation proclamation but he was determined not to be forced into premature and inoperative measures wendell phillips abused and held him up to public ridicule from the stump in new england horace greeley turned the batteries of the new york tribune against him and in a word he encountered all the rancor and hostility of his old friends the abolitionists general fremont having in the fall of eighteen sixty one undertaken by virtue of his authority as a military commander to emancipate the slaves in his department the president annulled the order which he characterized as unauthorized and premature this precipitated an avalanche of fanatical opposition individuals and delegations many claiming to have been sent by the lord visited him day after day and urged immediate emancipation in august eighteen sixty two horace greeley repeated the prayer of twenty millions of people protesting against any further delay such was the pressure from the outside all his life mr lincoln had been a believer in the doctrine of gradual emancipation he advocated it while in Congress in 1848, yet even now as a military necessity he could not believe the time was ripe for the general liberation of the slaves. All the coercion from without and all the blandishments from within, his political household failed to move him. An heroic figure, indifferent alike to praise and blame, he stood at the helm and waited. In the shadow of his lofty form, the smaller men could keep up their petty conflicts. Towering thus, he overlooked them all, and fearlessly abided his time. At last the great moment came. He called his cabinet together and read the decree. The deed was done, unalterably, unhesitatingly, irrevocably, and triumphantly. The people, at first profoundly impressed, stood aloof. But seeing the builder beside the great structure he had so long been rearing, their confidence was abundantly renewed. It was a glorious work, sincerely believed to be an act of justice, warranted by the Constitution upon military necessity, and upon it its author invoked the considerate judgment of mankind and the gracious favor of Almighty God. I believe Mr. Lincoln wished to go down in history as the liberator of the black man. He realized to its fullest extent the responsibility and magnitude of the act, and declared it was the central act of his administration and the great event of the nineteenth century. Always a friend of the Negro, he had from boyhood waged a bitter unrelenting warfare against his enslavement. He had advocated his cause in the courts, on the stump, in the legislature of his state, and that of the nation and as if to crown it with a sacrifice he sealed his devotion to the great cause of freedom with his blood as the years roll slowly by and the participants in the late war drop gradually out of the ranks of men let us pray that we may never forget their deeds of patriotic valor
but even if the details of that bloody struggle grow dim as they will with the lapse of time let us hope that so long as a friend of free man and free labor lives the dust of forgetfulness may never settle on the historic form of abraham lincoln as the war progressed there was of course much criticism of mr lincoln's policy and some of his political rivals lost no opportunity to encourage opposition to his methods he bore everything meekly and with sublime patience but as the discontent appeared to spread he felt called upon to indicate his course on more than one occasion he pointed out the blessings of the emancipation proclamation or throttled the clamorer for immediate peace in the following letter to james c conkling of springfield illinois in reply to an invitation to attend a mass meeting of unconditional union men to be held at his old home he not only disposed of the advocates of compromise but he evinced the most admirable skill in dealing with the questions of the day honorable james c conkling my dear sir your letter inviting me to attend a mass meeting of unconditional union men to be held at the capital of illinois on the third day of september has been received it would be very agreeable to me to thus meet my old friends at my own home but i cannot just now be absent from here but i cannot just now be absent from here so long as a visit there would require the meeting is to be of all those who maintain unconditional devotion to the union and i am sure my old political friends will thank me for tendering as i do the nation's gratitude to those other noble men whom no partisan malice or partisans hope can make false to the nation's life there are those who are dissatisfied with me to such i would say you desire peace and you blame me that we do not have it but how can we attain it there are but three conceivable ways first to suppress the rebellion by force of arms this i am trying to do are you for it if you are so far we are agreed if you are not for it a second way is to give up the union i am against this are you for it if you are you shouldn't say so plainly if you are not for force nor yet for dissolution then there only remains some imaginable compromise i do not believe any compromise embracing the maintenance of the union is now possible all i learn leads to a directly opposite belief the strength of the rebellion is its military its army that army dominates all the country and all the people within its range any offer of terms made by any man or men within that range in opposition to that army is simply nothing for the present because such man or men have no power whatsoever to enforce their side of a compromise if one were made with them to illustrate suppose refugees from the south and peacemen of the north get together in convention and frame and proclaim a compromise embracing a restoration of the union in what way can that compromise be used to keep lee's army out of pennsylvania meade's army can keep lee's army out of pennsylvania and i think can ultimately drive it out of existence but no paper compromise to which the controllers of lee's army are not agreed can at all affect that army in an effort at such compromise we should waste time which the enemy would improve to our disadvantage and that would be all a compromise to be effective must be made either with those who control the rebel army or with the people first liberated from the domination of that army by the success of our own army now allow me to assure you that no word or intimation from that rebel army or from any of the men controlling it 
in relation to any peace compromise has ever come to my knowledge or belief. All changes and insinuations to the contrary are deceptive and groundless. And I promise you that if any such proposition shall hereafter come, it shall not be rejected and kept a secret from you. I freely acknowledge myself the servant of the people, according to the bond of service, the United States Constitution, and that, as such, I am responsible to them. But to be plain, you are dissatisfied with me about the Negro. Quite likely, there is a difference of opinion between you and myself upon that subject. I certainly wish that all men could be free, while I suppose you do not. Yet I have neither adopted nor proposed any measure which is not consistent with even your view, provided you are for the Union. I suggested compensated emancipation, to which you replied you wished not to be taxed to buy Negroes. But I had not asked you to be taxed to buy Negroes, except in such way as to save you from greater taxation to save the Union exclusively by other means. You dislike the Emancipation Proclamation, and perhaps would have it retracted. You say it is unconstitutional. I think differently. I think the Constitution invests its commander-in-chief with the law of war in time of war. The most that can be said, if so much, is that slaves are property. Is there, has there ever been, any question that by the law of war, property, both of enemies and friends, may be taken when needed? And is it not needed wherever taking it helps us or hurts the enemy? Armies the world over destroy enemy's property when they cannot use it, and even destroy their own to keep it from the enemy. Civilized belligerents do all in their power to help themselves or hurt the enemy, except a few things regarded as barbarous or cruel. Among the exceptions are the massacre of vanquished foes and non-combatants, male and female. But the proclamation as law either is valid or is not valid. If it is not valid, it needs no retraction. If it is valid, it cannot be retracted any more than the dead can be brought back to life. Some of you profess to think its retraction would operate favorably for the Union. Why better after the retraction than before the issue? There was more than a year and a half of trial to suppress the rebellion before the proclamation issued the last one hundred days of which passed under an explicit notice that it was coming, unless averted by those in revolt returning to their allegiance. The war has certainly progressed as favorably for us since the issue of the proclamation as before. I know as fully as one can know the opinion of others that some of the commanders of our armies in the field, who have given us our most important successes, believe the emancipation policy and the use of the colored troops constituted the heaviest blow yet dealt to the rebellion, and that at least one of these important successes could not have been achieved when it was but for the aid of black soldiers. Among the commanders holding these views are some who have never had any affinity with what is called abolitionism or with Republican Party policies, but who held them purely as military opinions. I submit these opinions as being entitled to some weight against the objections often urged that emancipation and arming the blacks are unwise as military measures and were not adopted as such in good faith. You say you will not fight to free Negroes. Some of them are willing to fight for you, but no matter. Fight you, then, exclusively to save the Union. I issued the proclamation on purpose to aid you in saving the Union. Whenever you shall have conquered all resistance to the Union, if I shall urge you to continue fighting, it will be an apt time then for you to declare you will not fight to free Negroes. 
I thought that in your struggle for the Union, to whatever extent the Negroes should cease helping the enemy, to that extent it weakened the enemy in his resistance to you. Do you think differently? I thought that whatever Negroes can be got to do as soldiers leaves just so much less for white soldiers to do in saving the Union. Does it appear otherwise to you? But Negroes, like other people, act upon motives. Why should they do anything for us if we will do nothing for them? If they stake their lives for us, they must be prompted by the strongest motive, even the promise of freedom. And the promise being made must be kept. The signs look better. The father of waters again goes unvexed to the sea. Thanks to the great Northwest for it. Nor yet wholly to them, empire, nor yet wholly to them, three hundred miles up, they met New England, empire, Keystone, and Jersey, hewing their way right and left. The sunny south, too, in more colors than one, also lent a hand. On the spot, their part of the history was jotted down in black and white. The job was a great national one and let none be barred who bore an honorable part in it. And while those who have cleared the great river may well be proud, even that is not all. It is hard to say that anything has been more bravely and well done than at Antietam, Murfreesboro, Gettysburg, and on many fields of lesser note. Nor must Uncle Sam's webbed feet be forgotten. At all the watery margins they have been present, not only on the deep sea, the broad bay and the rapid river, but also up the narrow muddy bayou and wherever the ground was a little damp. They have been and made their tracks, thanks to all. For the great republic, for the principle it lives by and keeps alive, for man's vast future, thanks to all. Peace does not appear so distant as it did. I hope it will come soon and come to stay, and so come as to be worth the keeping in all future time. It will then have been proved that among free men there can be no successful appeal from the ballot to the bullet, and that they who take such appeal are sure to lose their case and pay the cost. And then there will be some black men who can remember that, with silent tongue and clenched teeth, and steady eye and well-poised bayonet, they have helped mankind unto this great consummation. While I fear there will be some white ones unable to forget that, with malignant heart and deceitful speech, they have strove to hinder it. Still, let us not be over-sanguine of a speedy final triumph. Let us be quite sober. Let us diligently apply the means, never doubting that a just God, in his own good time, will give us the rightful result. Yours very truly, A. Lincoln the summer and fall of 1864 were marked by Lincoln's second presidential campaign, he and Andrew Johnson of Tennessee for vice president, having been nominated at Baltimore on the 8th of June. Fremont, who had been placed in the field by a convention of malcontents at Cleveland, Ohio, had withdrawn in September, and the contest was left to Lincoln and General George B. McClellan, the nominee of the Democratic convention at Chicago. The canvas was a heated and bitter one, Dissatisfied elements appeared everywhere. The judge advocate general of the army, Holt, created a sensation by the publication of a report giving conclusive proof of the existence of an organized secret association at the North, controlled by prominent men in the Democratic Party, whose objects were the overthrow by revolution of the administration 
in the interest of the rebellion. Threats were rife of a revolution at the North, especially in New York City, if Mr. Lincoln were elected. Mr. Lincoln went steadily on in his own peculiar way. In a preceding chapter, Mr. Sweat has told us how indifferent he appeared to be regarding any efforts to be made on his behalf. He did his duty as president and rested secure in the belief that he would be re-elected, whatever might be done for or against him. The importance of retaining Indiana in the column of Republican states was not to be overlooked. How the president viewed it and how he proposed to secure the vote of the state is shown in the following letter written to General Sherman. Executive Mansion, Washington, September 19, 1864. Major General Sherman, the state election of Indiana occurs on the 11th of October, and the loss of it to the friends of the government would go far towards losing the whole Union cause. The bad effect upon the November election, and especially the giving the state government to those who will oppose the war in every possible way, are too much to risk if it can be avoided. The draft proceeds, notwithstanding its strong tendency to lose us the state. Indiana is the only important state voting in October whose soldiers cannot vote in the field. Anything you can safely do to let her soldiers, or any part of them, go home and vote at the state election will be greatly in point. They need not remain for the presidential election, but may return to you at once. This is in no sense an order, but is merely intended to impress you with the importance to the army itself of your doing all you safely can, yourself being the judge of what you can safely do. Yours truly, A. Lincoln. End of section 31. Recording by Don Bracci, Chicago, Illinois, www.voicedon.com.